This morning we continue our series on living the transformed life, and we're in the last of six sections, this one talking about community. And in each one of these sections, whether it be love or hope or power or courage or community, what we're suggesting from the Scriptures is that as the Holy Spirit begins to transform us more and more, we will begin to see ourselves living in a different kind of love, a different kind of hope, a different kind of courage, different kind of power, and a different sense of community. And so this morning we turn to a very familiar text, Joshua chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 14 and then go down to verse 7 in chapter 4. So when the people of Israel set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabia and the Salt Sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men of the people from each tribe a man and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. And bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. St. Francis of Assisi is known for a number of things his love of animals, his vow of poverty, his establishment of the Franciscan order. But one of the things that's very little known about St. Francis of Assisi was he had a fear, and that fear was leprosy. He was detested. He would find it detestable whenever he would even hear of the term leprosy. So one day he was traveling on a road, And he looked up in the distance, and there in the light was a man in complete whiteness. And instantly he knew he was a leper. He said, my heart recoiled within me. I couldn't even bear to walk in his direction. I shuddered at the thought of being contaminated, but then I rallied. Ashamed of myself, 
I ran to him. I threw my arms around him and began to kiss both of his cheeks. Within an instant, I was past him. A few steps more, and I turned around to look over my shoulder in his direction, and I saw no one on the road. And at that moment, I recognized that I had not hugged and kissed a leper. I had hugged and kissed Christ Jesus himself. Years ago, I told the story of a man who died and went to heaven. He comes to the gates, and he sees Peter, and he says, Peter, before I go in, could I ask a favor? Could you give me a glimpse into hell so that I might fully appreciate the extent of my gratitude for being in heaven? And Peter obliged. He took him to a certain place where he could look over this great valley and down into hell, and there he saw in front of him in hell a huge banquet table. The table had on it all of the delicacies the earth could offer. And around the table were people, men and women, boys and girls, but they all looked emaciated. They were starving to death. And so the man said to Peter, what is this? How is it that they're sitting around a table full of food and yet they're starving to death? And Peter said to the man, well, that's pretty easy. We have a requirement in hell. And the requirement is that you have to pick the food off the table with four-foot-long chopsticks and then use those same chopsticks to feed yourself. As the man watched, he saw these men and women, boys and girls, maneuvering these chopsticks, and they'd pick up a, a piece of bread, and they'd try to get it to their mouth, but before they could, it would fall. The man was so overcome by the gruesomeness of this that he said to Peter, I don't want any more, I don't want any more vision of hell. Show me heaven. And he walked to another point and he looked into heaven and there in front of him, to his amazement, was a table the same length. And on that table were the same foods. And around that table were people seated, men, women, boys and girls, but they all were well fed and well nourished. They were happy. They were laughing. And so the man said to Peter, no chopsticks? Peter said, oh, yes. In heaven, we have the same rule. You must eat with four-foot-long chopsticks. So the man said, well, how is it that these people are well-fed and nourished? Peter said, because in heaven, we feed each other. The time of the Protestant Reformation, very early on, there was a man by the name of Peter Ramus. And Ramus made a statement that has been picked up over the centuries and used by people in every discipline of human endeavor. Now, Ramus was talking about studying the Scriptures when he said this, but other people use it for all kinds of inquiry. He said this, I seek to think God's thoughts after Him. Now, the natural inclination of the human heart is the opposite. The natural inclination of the human heart is to figure out what you desire and then go to Scripture to prove it. And nowhere is that clearer than when it comes to faith. Because for most of us in this room and most Christians everywhere on this planet on the day of Pentecost, at least in the Western world, when we think of faith, we think of he and me. God and me. And when you think about it, that's exactly what Satan's temptation of Eve in the garden was all about. 
In Genesis 2.18, the Lord says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Actually, the word helper there is, is literally in Hebrew opposite. I'll make one opposite him so that together they'll be one. And as soon as Satan hears that, and as soon as Satan sees that a woman has been made, he does two things. He isolates her, and he appeals to her individuality. There are those who suggest that our desire for independence, our desire for individuality is born of God, when in reality the Scripture says the opposite. Even Satan recognizes the fact when he says to Eve, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It's interesting. The you there in Hebrew is plural. I was in Shadyside last week, and I saw a t-shirt that was interesting to me. It said, yin's is proper, y'all is stupid. <laughs> now, whether it's yin's or y'all, to think God's thoughts after him is to recognize that from God's perspective, the we is much more important than the me. In fact, I would submit to you, as one matures spiritually, as one matures into the image of Christ, as one is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, one will begin to be much more we-focused rather than me-focused. Think of what John says about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right after the transfiguration, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Where two of you agree on earth is touching inner matter, it will be done of my Father in heaven. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Lord, Father, you have given me those out of the world and I've kept them. On the cross, he looks at John, and then he looks at his mother and says, John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. He says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Fifty-four times in the New Testament, we read this construction, one another. Thirteen times in his earthly ministry, Jesus speaks about the power of one another. Almost every personal pronoun in the New Testament is plural, and yet many of us read it as singular. And the New Testament isn't the only place where we see and we read of the thoughts of God on this matter. It's all over the Old Testament, and the text before us this morning proves it. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the rescuer. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. Now remember who these people are. Most of them are the direct descendants of people who have come through the Red Sea. If their parents had believed Caleb and Joshua, if their parents had trusted in the Lord, their parents would have been out of Egypt and into the promised land in two weeks. And yet they don't. They don't believe the report, and so they don't enter the promised land. 
In fact, with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb, every person that stands on the banks of the Jordan River has not been alive when God parted the Red Sea. Everybody over 20 years old at the Red Sea crossing is dead. Now remember the Red Sea crossing. God said to Moses, I want you to go there, and I want you to lead my people through the sea. And when they come to the sea, the Lord says, as the Egyptian army is ready to overtake them, he says to Moses, raise your staff or your rod. And the Bible says, when he raises that staff, the waters part. They pile up in a heap, same word. And the people of Israel walk through that sea on dry ground. It's arguably the greatest miracle of the Old Testament. Every Hebrew would see that miracle as the greatest. And yet I would submit to you that this crossing of the Jordan is perhaps even greater. You say, how can that be? Because at the Red Sea, God uses a man and his staff, but at the Jordan River, God does it himself. Think of it. Of all the furnishings of the tabernacle, five years ago we studied every piece of that tabernacle, there is one piece of furniture that is the most glorious, that is the greatest, that is the piece of furniture in the tabernacle where, the Holy, where God's Spirit itself dwelled, His resting place over the Ark of the Covenant. At the Red Sea, He uses a rod to rescue His people. At the Jordan River, he uses an ark to deliver his people. At the Red Sea, he used an intermediary to lead them through the waters. But here at the Jordan River, it's God, his own presence in that ark that leads the people through the water. Think of it. God gets down into that water and leads his people to the promised land. Second, notice the root. Yet there will be a distance between you and it, that is the ark. About 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Now the Jordan River had three banks. And it's thought that, and the Bible seems to indicate that in this text, that this was flood stage. This was a time when the waters overflowed the first bank, second bank, and even the third bank. This is the time of year when the waters are the highest, they're the most raging, they're the most dangerous, and that's the time the Lord calls His people to come to the Jordan. You say, why? Why didn't He take a, do it during the, the height of the summer when it was drier? Because, ladies and gentlemen, God usually doesn't work that way. He takes us to the Jordan at our most dangerous point. Now, according to, in my opinion, the finest biblical scholar, a biblical historian in the last 500 years, Alfred Edersheim, the number of men waiting to cross the Jordan River was 601,730 men. You say, how did he know? 
because he did a lot of research. You say, I'm not sure I buy that number. Okay, 600,000 men, all right? That means if you extrapolate to women and children, there are over 2 million Hebrews who are on this side of the Jordan waiting to go into the promised land. And the Bible says, once they get there, God makes them wait there for three days. You say, why does He make them wait? Well, there are those who say, and you can see this in the text, that they are to prepare themselves. They're to sanctify themselves. They're to pray up. They're to get ready. And that's true. There are others that say the reason they waited three days was God didn't tell Joshua exactly where the ark was supposed to cross the Jordan. So they had to find the exact location. Well, I think there's another reason that I hadn't read. It's probably out there. I think the reason he makes them wait for three days is because God knows what he's about to do and he wants the people to have an acute awareness of what he does. When God says to Joshua, then you will know which way to go. He's not simply talking about getting ready. He's not simply talking about geography. He's talking about his own glory. Think of it. For 30 years, uh, 40 years, he's led them by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. For 40 years, he sent signs and wonders into their midst. For 40 years, he's led them at a distance. But here in the Jordan, he will lead them himself by his own presence. And the distance between he, his presence and the people is about a thousand feet. You see, they've never been led this way before. They've never been led by God at this close proximity before. When they go through the Jordan, He is right with them. Then third, notice the representatives. Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Now think of what God is saying here. Joshua, I want you to pick 12 men to go back into the river. Now think of that. You've already crossed this flooded, dangerous river. And God says, I want you to pick 12 guys to go back in. And I want those men to come all the way to the ark. All the way to the feet of the priest. No more thousand feet. I want them to come all the way to me. I want them to come into my presence. And once there, I want them to pick up a stone and carry it to Gilgal. Why not ten men? Why not 20 men? Why 12 men? So that every single person in that nation of Israel would know that God is the one who leads them through that river and He does it 
when they're all together. So that everyone will know that they are in this together. Nobody will swim across the river. Nobody will take a boat across the river. No one will go across the river on his own. He, God, will lead them through this flood-swollen river. He will bring them into the promised land. God will do it for them when they gather together. When they're all there, after three days of waiting, God will perform this Incredible miracle. And then fourth, notice the rocks. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. Ten years ago, I went to Georgia to visit my parents, and I had an alternative purpose. I wanted to get a rock. I wanted to get a big stone made of marble for the prayer room up in the main building. And so I enlisted my parents in this effort. They began to ask their friends. Nobody knew where to get a rock. We talked to one Georgian who said if we wanted a big piece of marble, he said uh, it, isn't, it, it ain't called a, a piece, it's called a chunk. And if you want a chunk of marble, you better go up yonder to Marble Hill to fetch one. And so we took off 70 miles that began an adventure that took us to, to three marble companies, about 20 people who shook their heads and said we were crazy. You couldn't get no chunk around here. Finally, it took us to a redneck with a forklift, and the president of the company who was unyielding until he found out I was a crazy reverend. And he said to Buddy, Go help this preacher get a chunk. So for 700 miles, I drove it back in my van. When it got here, we had a little cart used for moving heavy furniture. Four men, about a half hour, get it down the steps and position it there in that prayer room. And every time I go into that prayer room and I see that stone, that rock, I remember that story and the grace of God in providing it. Now, according to every scholar I read who spoke of this, they all said the same thing. Each one of these stones, these rocks, was approximately 200 pounds. So when you pick 12 men out of the 12 tribes, you better pick husky guys because they will not only go into that dry riverbed and lift that 200-pound rock, they will then put it on their shoulders and carry it for five miles to Gilgal. Do you know what Gilgal means? It has two definitions. One is, I have removed. And that stands to reason. The Lord not only removed the rocks from the riverbed, but He also removed His people from the dangers. He, he provided a way into the promised land. He Himself removed the people from danger. He Himself removed them from their wanderings. He Himself removed them from the troubles of the wilderness. 
Now, this is another sermon, and I won't preach it today, but isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ will do every time His people will, in the future, stand at the river? Leaving this wilderness and entering the promised land, won't He Himself show up? Won't He Himself lead us through that river? But the Gilgal, Gilgal means more than he will remove. It also literally means a place of a circle of standing stones. In other words, that town will be named for this event. Not only will he remove his people and bring them to the promised land, he will also establish a memorial of circled stones that every time the people see those stones, they will remember what God has done. Now, remember this. Gilgal was the place where Samuel anointed the first king of Israel, Saul. Gilgal was the place where Elijah and Elisha lived. And yet, it takes its name not from those important events, but it takes its name from these rocks that will stand for generations to come as a permanent reminder that God didn't just lead one person or two people, He led two million people across the Jordan River. And when did He do it? When they were all together. And then fifth and finally, notice the reason. When your children ask you in the time... Uh, to come. What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now there are two Hebrew words that are used here that are profoundly significant. In fact, they are used 21 times in these three chapters 3, 4, and 5. The first one is a word called abar, which means to cross over. The Lord Himself caused us to cross over. He caused them to cross over from a wilderness a wilderness of sin into a land flowing with milk and honey. He caused them to cross over into a whole new experience of His grace. And notice when He does it. When they're together. You say, but they still had to fight when they got into the promised land. That's right. They still sinned. That's right. They still had to grow up. That's right. They still had to face an uncertain future in an unfamiliar place. That's right. But when they did every one of those things and they were successful, it was when they were together. And then there's the other word. Kerarath. It means literally to cut off. Now think of what the Lord did for them that day. He cut off the rivers of the Jordan. You know, I read in that text, you know, from Adam. You know how far the Lord cut off this water? 30 miles. 
He stacked the water of the Jordan up for 30 miles of dry land. He didn't just cut off the rivers of the Jordan for 30 miles. He cut off all of their longing for Egypt. He cut off all of the penalty of their parents' sin. He cut off every single doubt and every single desire that would prompt them to say in their heart, God makes promises and He doesn't keep them. He cut them off from everything external to themselves and He brought them together as a group. You see, St. Francis of Assisi was right. God's cure for fear is the fellowship of His people. Peter Ramus is right. The proper result of genuine Bible study is to think the thoughts of God after Him. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no greater, there is no clearer, there is no more life-changing thought than this. That we is better than me. You know what proves that? The day He rescued us. None of you were rescued by Jesus alone. He used others. And none of you that were rescued by Jesus were to live alone. He puts you into a company of believers. That's what Pentecost is about. That's what Memorial Day is about. Can you think of a better time to remember the example that He's done for us together forever? When He rescued us, He rescued us for Himself and for each other. There's no better time than today to think about that. Watch this. You know, there's a story about a guy named Joshua. From the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. God told him to build a memorial out of stones. Yeah, and the stones were to be a reminder of this great thing that God had done. So we know it's not the same thing, but we were wondering if we could remember your dad with you. Remember all the great things he's done. Sure. So this one here, this one's for remembering a great friend. This is uh, for his part in keeping my kids safe at night. You got one? Not yet. Okay. Um, this one's for him being the reason I even know anything at all about the Bible. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. This is for dragging us to church that first time. This is for freedom to worship and his sacrifice for that. This one's for not letting his best friends stay mad at each other. You know, he loved the simple things. Things like people getting to speak their mind or having dreams and pursuing them. 
This is for defending those things. You know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. I want to. It's okay, buddy. Just take your time, then. This one's not just for my dad, but for all the people like him who helped protect their country. I'll skip to that one. <laughs> 